Welcome to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips, a color-conscious podcast about politics. I'm your host, Steve Phillips, and this is airing on the last day of September, bringing to mind the lyrics of the Earth, Wind & Fire song, September, which opened with the words, Do You Remember? And so in, in light of today's topic, I am finding myself remembering. I clearly remember my grandmother, Fanny Cochran, using the phrase colored people. And I remember one of my middle school friends angrily confronting another friend back in the 1970s, getting in the face of that person and saying, who you call him black? And I remember a conversation with Jesse Jackson in the 1980s where my friend Amanda Kemp was complaining to Jesse about whether we really had to start using the phrase African-American because it was such a mouthful. And I remember working with a group of students in the 80s who were black nationalists, and they thought we should all be referring to ourselves as Africans. And I'll never forget, and I'll always remember, a Black Student Union meeting in the late 1980s when Bill King, then president of BSU, said, I hope we can just decide what we're going to call ourselves, or as Black, or African, or African-American, so we can get on to dealing with what we're going to do about being oppressed Blacks, or Africans, or African-Americans. And so I, I, I find myself reminiscing about those experiences as we're preparing for today's podcast, which is taking place during Hispanic Heritage Month which I frankly did not know was a thing that was a big deal to people in the community. And a lot of people that I came of age with, and certainly in my college years, don't like the phrase Hispanic, which is a lot of why I use the word Latino in my book and writing. And then now there's a movement to popularize the phrase Latinx. And so on top of all that terminology reality, there's much more growing attention politically, but much less understanding, of the implications of the voting behavior of the members of the Hispanic, Latino, Latinx community. There's been a lot of hot takes in the media about Democrats' problems with voters from those communities. Yet most of those takes, really the most popular ones, the ones that are getting the most attention are coming from white data geek dudes like David Shore, who have little experience in or understanding of these communities. So we thought we talked to somebody who has a lifetime of experience as a Latina in America, and I'm really excited for today's conversation where we can hopefully get some insight both on what words to use, but also what policies and politics to be able to lift up this country and build the kind of majority that we need. And so for this conversation, I'm joined as always by my co-hosts who apparently missed another emerging holiday, National Daughter's Day, much to her daughter's dismay. But Kaylee, if you're listening, your mother really does love you. Hi, Charlene. How are you? Have you recovered from the Daughter's Day experience? And do you want to introduce our guest? <laughs> yeah, uh, we've recovered and, and uh, reminded ourselves never to mention again at the end of the day. Oh, hey, I, I just found out it's the, the day that we're supposed to be celebrating people like you. So we, we found out at the end of National Daughter's Day that it was a thing and we were just telling Kaylee about it. And she was like, what? It had a whole day. It was National Daughter's Day and you didn't even celebrate me. <laughs> So happy National Daughters Day to all the daughters out there. I'm doing well overall, and I'm really looking forward to talking to our guest today. I can't wait to let listeners know all about her. This guest, quietly under the radar, has been running one of the most successful Latino voter contact and mobilization operations in the country during the 2020 election cycle. And that's why I'm so excited to let people know about her, because one of the things we love doing is getting the hidden figures out of being labeled hidden. Yeah, (laughs) it's like they should not be hidden. They should be in the spotlight. Everyone should know about them. And so uh, today's guest is one of those people. Her name is Melissa Morales. Melissa is the vice president of Civic Strategy Group. She's executive director of 
Somos Votantes and president of Somos PAC, a Latino voter mobilization effort that raised $33 million in 2020. Previously, she was the research director for EQIS Research, a Latino voter research project that spans 11 states. And before her work there, she served as executive director of SEIU Florida. And again, SEIU stands for Service Employees International Union, where she coordinated state political campaigns. And like you were saying, Steve, unlike many of the other prominent Democratic experts, I'm putting my fingers in air quotes, uh, experts on Latino voters, many of whom who do get the most spotlight, who are not hidden. A lot of them are white male political consultants and data scientists, like our quote unquote favorite, David Shore. Obama's (laughs) favorite. Yeah. And uh, also the media's favorite, right? So, you know, unlike those dudes, Melissa has, like you mentioned, spent an entire lifetime being Latina and being actually part of Latino communities, being part of Latino uh, families, and with this lived experience, along with her brilliance and her insight into the voting patterns of the Latino community, just makes her voice, her insight, her experience, her expertise so critical to the national conversation about this very important demographic group. And Steve, if I'm not mistaken, the largest non-white group in the nation, right? It is the largest POC people of color group in our yep. country yep. and growing every day. And we're going to talk all about that. And so that's why I, I just think this conversation and understanding that group is increasingly important to all people living in this country. And I was saying to a friend of um, Mexican descent one time, which, you know, she's start calling the United States of Mexican-Americans. <laughs> it's such a significant group. Yeah. So welcome, Melissa, and happy Hispanic or Latino or Latinx or Latine Heritage Month. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me um, on to talk today. Really excited to actually be able to voice my opinions about um, what is happening in the Latino community, what we've seen in the past few elections, what we're seeing in the upcoming election, and and have a platform to actually um, use my voice. So thank you so much for having me. Yeah, well, thanks so much for, for joining us. And that it's you're you're in the I think I've told like a uh, Crystal's Romania works for Texas organizing project. I says you know. The, some of the most humble people that I know are Latinas. And so like, it probably makes you guys much better people, but it's actually not good for your brand and for national <laughs> politics and whatnot. And so the, 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 dis, the disconnect, frankly, between the accomplishments and then how much people know about is really something I keep pushing all of you to do more about to let the world know uh, what, you're, what you're up to and so what your insights are. And so we're really glad you could join us today. Melissa, I wanted to start off by talking about your current pin tweet, which I loved. And I immediately told my whole, our entire team about it. So you got to check out this tweet. We have to talk about it. Your most recent tweet in your Twitter account in which you say, I'm going to quote you, before you engage in the Hispanic versus Latino versus Latinx debate, please ask yourself if you've done anything recently to actually invest in Hispanic, Latino, Latinx communities and voter outreach efforts. Time, question mark, money, question mark, energy, question mark, no, then just shh, shush, please. Some of us are trying to work. I was like, yes, <laughs> big snaps, <laughs> big high five, like just so awesome. So can you tell us first 
about the work you're doing at Somos Votantes and Equus Research, and then we can get a little bit into your your tweet. Sure, yeah. Um, and I will say I, I fired off that tweet. I Every time I log on to Twitter and I see Latinx trending, and I know there's just this huge debate going on between people who aren't actually working in the space, mm. always nags at me a little bit. So I fired that one off, uh, but I stand by it. Uh, but yes, happy to talk about the work that Somos is doing. As you may know, Somos Votantes and Somos PAC are a set of Latino voter mobilization organizations. Our mission, I think when I boil it down, is pretty simple. It's how do I help people like my dad and my mom to vote? So how are we cutting through the political noise? How are we meeting people where they are? How are we actually having interactions with people and not just transactions with people during election cycles? Um, and really getting down to where the rubber meets the road. So really, it's how do I help people like my dad to vote, which is exactly what Somos is doing. And and in order to do that, you know, it's it's voter education, it's voter mobilization, it's voter persuasion. Like you said, in, in 2020, which was our big sort of coming out year, we did $33 million in program to help um, mobilize. <laughs> yeah, it was amazing and persuade amazing. Latino voters ahead of the 2020 election. Um, and that was both the presidential and key Senate races. And it was incredible. I think that was sort of my my sort of five to 10 year plan for Somos and not my one year plan for Somos. So we're growing um, and we're growing quickly. But I think really that sort of investment um, highlighted the, the vast need that's out there to really engage Latino voters. And for us, that means talking directly with them, not just at them. So in 2020, we knocked almost 2 million doors, you know, had strict COVID safe protocols, but knew that it was important that our that we were talking to our people about what was happening because there's so much noise and misinformation out there and, and knowing that if we weren't talking to them the other side most certainly was so um, knocked almost two million doors we had um, almost o- over four million live calls and texts you know mail Spanish language radio Spanish language TV digital ads really surround sound everything we could possibly do to reach our voters and we're continuing that in 21. Um, really starting to strategize and and have some plans in place for what we will be doing during the midterms where we know that we will have a tough road ahead of us, um, but we're ready for that fight. Can you talk a little bit more, we were making our little, you know, snide asides about the cultural disconnect people who are occupying all the space and opining about in the Latino community. Can you share a little bit about your own background? You talk about you know, people getting people like your father to vote and what your experiences. I do think that that's quite relevant, you know, for your situation, but also more broadly, is what is people's connection to these different communities, right? And people talk about, you know, black communities and that. I'm like, well, if people haven't been to a black barbershop or hair salon, they really probably shouldn't be opining too strongly, right? And so can you just give us a little bit of background about your own, you know, own background and, and family story? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think that's a, a great segue because it's it's why I'm so passionate about the work that Somos is doing. Um, so I was born in San Angelo, Texas, which is a city in central western Texas that you will never go to unless you have a family member who lives there. It's not a tourist town, but it's where my parents and their parents are from. And so, you know, we've been from that area in central west Texas for generations now. Um, but that's where I was born. In- inner tubing place near there? Yes, there is. I'm trying to remember what it's called now. We never got to go when I was a kid because, you know, that costs money. But 
it was the sort of dream that was out there, the oasis in the Texas desert. <laughs> and I've got family in Texas. We went down that inner tube thing several years yeah. ago. It was quite fun, actually. Yeah. Um, so I, I love, you know, where I grew up. Um, but we actually moved to rural Kansas when I was about 10 years old, um, which is actually where I'm talking to you from now. I'm back home right now visiting some of my old stomping grounds here for Hispanic Heritage Month. But you know, growing up, I think I always and I say this a lot, but it's because it's so true is that I grew up thinking that my family just had really bad luck, right? We were working really hard. I was raised by a single mom who was working multiple jobs to try to make ends meet. There were four of us kids. Um, and there was just never really enough to go around. And my dad was in prison for most of my childhood up until I graduated from high school. And you know, it was just it felt like one bad thing after another, and we couldn't outrun it. And we couldn't outwork it. So I told myself, you know, that I was I was going to try to help my family and, and I, I did what I could. I was the first person in my family to graduate from high school. My parents both have eighth grade education. So I graduated from high school. I went to college um, and I thought I'm going to go to college. I'm going to go to law school so that I can be a lawyer and I can help people like my dad because my dad wasn't just the sole person this had happened to, right? I saw this happening over and over again in my community where so many people were being incarcerated. So I did that. I graduated from high school. I went to college. I got to college. And there was this sort of like wall of anger that hit me as I realized that we weren't bad luck, that there was this entire system that was in place that was purposely put there to keep people like my family in our place um, and to create these haves and these have-nots and to pit them against each other. And, and so graduated from college, got to law school and realized that it was, you know, the entire legal system that was in place to sort of run our country and keep everything on track was set up in the same way. It was set up to oppress people that mm -hmm. looked like me, that looked like my dad. So I thought, change of plans, I've got to go then. We've got bad laws, right? Like, we, this is happening because the laws are bad and the policies are bad. So I went to DC for a semester during law school because I thought, I've got to go where they're making laws because that's where I can make change. And I worked at the Senate um, that summer and realized very quickly that we have bad laws because we have, in some cases, bad electeds. Yeah. bad people in office. And we, you know, I, in my mind, it was this sort of light bulb that went off that was like, we have bad people in office because people like me and my family aren't voting. And so I need to go and do whatever needs to be done to get better people elected. And for me, that meant how can I get my community involved in this? And so got involved in labor. And then after labor, you know, decided I wanted to do something much more focused for Latino voters. And that was how SOMOS was born. But we're, we're going to want to get into the tailoring of the programs and the work and then your uh, analysis around, uh, particularly coming out of 2020, what happens implications for 2022. Um, but before getting too into that, can we circle back on what we're talking about at the top around the vocabulary situation? Where are you at in terms of what words to be used in terms of your community? And what, I guess, kind of advice do you have in terms of what phrases people should be used? How do you kind of look at those issues? Yeah, so it's a good question because I feel like this keeps coming up and so often we're not asking people like me, other people in this space, what they actually think um, and how they got there. So I, I identify as Latina. You know, uh, growing up, I, I identified as Hispanic. Um, you know, I think that the terms Hispanic Latino, Latina, those have very personal implications to a lot of people in my community who have sort of 
for our entire lives, sometimes that identity was what we had to hold on to, right? That was all the pride we had was who we were and who our people were because of the resilience that was behind our people that had allowed us to to continue to survive no matter what was going on around us. So I think when we're having this conversation and this debate about whether we're calling ourselves Hispanic or Latino or Latina or Latinx, I think the first place we need to stop and just take a breath is in remembering that these are not just descriptors we are handing to people. These are identities that people have for themselves as well. And so we need to respect that in them, right? That identity that they hold for themselves. So I think that's step one. I think step two is that I also want to lift up and recognize that what is happening right now in this Latino versus Latinx versus Hispanic debate is that the right is definitely using this as a way to attack us and to divide us. And so I think the second step in this debate is just to remember that no matter what we identify as, we are still in solidarity together, right? We are still in this movement, in this fight, in this this movement forward together. And so that's my second step in this debate. And then the third one is to just recognize that whether you identify as Hispanic, Latino, Latinx, that is not a reason to attack each other. Um, so I personally identify as Latino and Latina. My dad identifies as Hispanic because that is what he has always identified himself as. And I have friends who identify as Latinx because it really, you know, recognizes the forward facing thinking of what we could be. And I, I respect all of those opinions. And I think we can all hold those in ourselves and also hold the work together. And everybody I know in the movement, you know, who is who is Latino or Hispanic or Latinx is doing that. We have no problem recognizing I call myself this, I identify as this let's work together. It really does feel like it's the surround sound of people who are not actually involved in the work who keep creating this conflict. So are you really saying that this it's generational and that you're not old and not terribly young? Is that what you're uh, settling? <laughs> I always just ride the middle, right? No, um, I think for me, it's, it's I identify as Latino and sometimes Hispanic, but I, I think like recognizing that Hispanic leaves off such a huge, you know, if we're talking about I myself, can be Hispanic. But if we're talking about the community at large, it's unfair to characterize it as Hispanic when that leaves out so many others. Mm -hmm. um, so I have, you know, chosen to use the term Latino, Latina, especially in the work that Somos is doing, because we want it to be reflective of the broad landscape of, you know, people who identify that yeah. way, not just those who identify as Hispanic. Right. And what about Hispanic Heritage Month? Is is that a thing in the community? Is that thing something that's been important to you and your family and your circle? Or is it more of a new thing? Or what can you share with us about that? So we actually, growing up, in, I, um, when I was in Texas, I was at an almost exclusively, just because of you know the way that neighborhoods are, um, Latino school, I was a, a, probably about 98% you know, Mexican American students specifically. And so we, I do remember having like fiestas and we had, you know, the dresses and we would do the Mexican dances around September 16th, which is, mm. you know, the beginning of Hispanic Heritage Month and it's also Mexican Independence Day. So I, I do remember that being a thing. There was like a citywide fiesta that would happen. But I think, you know, we moved to Kansas, not as much of a thing there. Um, even <laughs> surprise, <though> surprise. <laughs> 
it's so funny though because the city that I live in, liberal Kansas that I was raised in, is over fifty percent Hispanic and Latino. Oh, um, wow! Um, there's two meatpacking plants here. It's a huge agriculture community, so it really is. You wouldn't know it by the power dynamics that exist on sort of the legislative level. That's right. Which is what Somos is trying to change. Yeah, that's. I always um, need to remind myself that I have sort of dated perceptions of what the image of certain parts of the country are and that the demographic revolution has happened everywhere. And so unless I have the really look, uh, get updated data and statistics, it's like there's these perceptions that parts of the middle uh, of the country are, are, you know, wide. And yet, yet, like you said, there's all sorts of parts of it that are, are diversifying every day and far more people of color and including Latinos and different immigrants who are moving all the time to different parts of the country. And that's why I would always say, like, you know, for the Steve's first book, Brown is the New White, you know, the demographic revolution happening everywhere. And so I just wanted to pivot. This is a good place to have us talk about that. The very thing that, we, you know, you were talking about how, um, and thank you so much for the really clear and uh, concise way that you described how, there needs to be and how there is all this respect for one another in terms of how individuals in your community either identify with the term Latino or Hispanic or Latinx and, and to remember how very diverse it is. Because I think, unfortunately, for many people outside of the group, there's this perception constantly of and thinking of it and treating of it as very homogenous, as, as this monolith. And yet people forget that it's not a monolith. I did some quick, quick research and this population that we call Latino is actually a collective of people who can trace their ancestry back to at least 15 different countries. I'm sure more where people's ancestries come from. And I know that Latino organizers have been saying this for a long time, that Latinos are not a monolith. And we see that in the results also in the 2020 election. And I think that people, are, uh, who, again, who are outside the community are still grappling to try to understand why is it different over here? Why is it different over there? So, Melissa, I wanted to ask you, what are some of uh, the major takeaways from the 2020 election cycle that stood out to you and specifically regarding Latinos and the Latino vote? You would be surprised how little I am asked about my take on Latinos in the 2020 election. Uh, 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 yeah, uh, I'm surprised. <laughs> like, what are they asking you about? That's like your, that's your lane. Um, so I think that there, I mean, there have been a hundred different, I've read, I've heard a hundred different takes about what happened in the Latino community in 2020 what we need to do in 2022. I hear, you know, people are starting to recognize this concept of the Latino community is not a monolith. Those same takes are not quite there on what that means, what that means for voter engagement, what that means, you know, for demographic shifts moving forward, that they just hear it. And so it's starting to be sort of this repetitive line that I think important for us to remember. And this was certainly true for the 2020 election that when we talk about Latinos are not a monolith. We are not only saying Latinos are not a monolith if we're talking about nation of origin, demographics, Mexicans versus Cubans versus Puerto Ricans, Venezuelans, Colombians, you know, El Salvadorans. Um, we're also saying that we are not a monolith when it comes to political ideology, right? Equis um, has described, and I've heard Carlos Odio say this over and over, is that they describe Latinos as the last true swing voters in the country, right? There is this sort of 
willingness to listen to and be persuaded by messaging, which I think is is a great opportunity for us if we are willing to, to reach out and grab it. And so that was one of my biggest takeaways of the 2020 election was that, you know, I'm not naive. I know that there are lessons to be learned because I saw, I see the data that shows me that Donald Trump was able to make inroads in our community, in certain communities, But the bottom line is that that did not just happen. They did that because they invested in the long term. There was a massive amount of investment that went into South Florida and the Latino community. When Donald Trump won Florida in 2016, they were on the ground in Miami and they did not leave for the next four years. They continuously invested in that community. So I think, number one, yes, our our community is not a monolith, but also investment works. And we saw that work against us in the 2020 election in some communities. Um, but also, you know, our side did did a lot in also trying to invest in Latino voters. I think the bottom line is that we like to talk about the voters who shifted. I have seen this narrative about vote shifters. I get it. I, I hear you. You know, we can talk about people who went Obama to Trump, people who went Clinton to Trump all day long. But we what we actually saw in 2020 more was that he got, Donald Trump got new voters to turn out because he actually talked to them, which I think is a huge sort of, you know, boom across the bow for us in making us look in the mirror and ask ourselves as a coalition, are we doing enough to invest in Latino voters? You know, can you wake up in the morning and look yourself in the mirror and say, yes, I believe we are doing everything we can to reach Latino voters and we are talking to them as we should be and we're researching our messages and we're we're meeting them where they are. Like, I don't think we can honestly say that. I think we did a lot in 2020. And I think the other thing I want to say about my takeaway from 2020 is that I don't want to take away from the Latino voters who helped carry Joe Biden to victory. There were a massive Absolutely. amount of Latino voters. Yeah. Yes. Totally agree. Yeah. And, and I feel like that narrative sort of gets lost sometimes mm-hmm. um, because we don't talk about the fact that 67% of Latina women voted for Biden. And we're, when we're looking at white women voters, that drops to 48%, right? Hello. So like, Hello. <laughs> <laughs> and then Target Smart this week came out with some new data. And we can talk about Arizona if you want, because I have some things to say about Arizona. But Arizona was close. They, Biden won Arizona by about 10,000 votes in 2020. He netted. 160,000 votes over Trump in Maricopa County's Latino community alone. So when we want to talk about whether Latino voters showed up and did what they were supposed to do, like Joe Biden won Arizona because of Latino voters in that state and because of the groups that were organizing on the ground there to, to mobilize Latino voters. And so I don't ever want that narrative to get lost in the sort of, well, what happened with Latino voters chaos narrative that happens out there. Right. So I want to I want to I want to focus on that for a second. I think that what you're saying just really highlight and lift up. Right. And this is the, I got into a well, I mean, call it a Twitter thing with David Shore. He responded to a tweet and I was, did a Twitter thread and then I've heard nothing. But it's uh, beyond him just specifically. There's this perception, uh, which is almost becoming an article of faith in the, among the media, that a lot of people, particularly Latinos, switched from voting Democratic to voting Republican and to backing Trump. And they're calling this this erosion of support among Latinos. And so this point, I want to really lift up what, what you were just saying, Melissa, around the new people who came out to vote, right? When I, in my Twitter thing with uh, Shore saying, I cannot square the circle with Joe Biden 
and the Democrats getting more votes than they got before. And yet at the same time, you're saying they lost votes. And so if you're, if you're losing all these votes from people of color and from these different communities, how is the vote expanding, including among Latinos, right? And so the answer to that, which nobody has yet refuted, is what, exactly what you were saying, as I understand it, that Trump got more people to come out of the non-voters, a bigger portion of them came out for Trump. And so then that's an interesting thing to look at, but that's a very different thing that Democratic support is eroding. But I want to ask, in terms of the distinctions, what you have seen and what your experience has been in terms of, are there distinctions and how meaningful are the distinctions within the Latino vote, both by nationalities, right? So yes, while there are 15 different countries of origin. Remember, Charlene, we were going through this for this for Latinos and Asians and writing Brown is the new white. It's like, oh, I remember <laughs> far down. We're going to do I remember Guatemalans was like, are we going to talk about Guatemalans? How many are we going to include? The lion's share is Mexican and it's not it's like 64 percent or something. Correct me if I'm wrong, uh, Melissa, but that the which is not accidental because we're right next to Mexico and then we took Mexico and made it Texas in the southwest. And so this is not inconsequential in terms of the politics of this country. And so it's logical that so many of the Latinos in the country would be of Mexican origin because this country quite literally took Mexico. And as I'm working in the book, it was 1836. And in March of 1836 is when they put together the Texas Constitution. Stay tuned for my forthcoming book. But back to the point here, <laughs> distinctions by nationality, Mexican, Cuban, Puerto Rican. So that's one question. And then the other is distinctions by gender, because I really feel like much of these analyses miss just the plain old reality of sexism and misogyny. And that to the extent, certainly I think so among African-Americans, there was some incursion. I think there's some level of that being men gravitating towards Trump's machismo. So what's your take on those things? Yeah. So I think, you know, we're talking about different nation of origins and, and you know, when we're looking at certainly Cubans versus Puerto Ricans versus Mexicans, you you do see differences in how they vote. And, it, and that shouldn't be a surprise, right? Because for, for people who are coming from other countries, certainly where they are coming from, the political realities that they have had to deal with in their countries will translate to how they feel about politics in the United States. And so Yes, we certainly see some of those differences. I do want to say, though, I, I think it's important that when we're crafting messaging, we're aware of that, right? It shouldn't be that we are giving the same messaging to everyone. I think there are times when we need to be very targeted if we're talking to, a, you know, if we're in Osceola County in Florida, I'm going to be thinking about what do Puerto Rican voters in Florida care about? Because that is who I'm talking to there. If I'm in, you know, in South Florida, I'm thinking about Cuban voters and Venezuelans and Colombians. And so I think that is important. Yes, we have to be very targeted in our messaging. I do though, and this is sort of like a warning to us all, is like, we can't use the fact that the differences in demographics in, in the Latino community make it harder to message to them as an excuse not to message to them, which I've seen done before, right? It's so hard, there's so many different groups, we can't target them, there's no targets on the data file that we can really pull. Because I think it was so interesting to me in 2019 when I was serving as research director for Eki's Research, every single survey that we did across states, across demographics in the Latino community, every single survey that we did, people were naming the economy as one of their top issues right? Like first or second in almost every every survey. And in those same surveys, we were seeing that consistently Donald Trump's approval on the economy was outpacing his overall job approval by about 
10 to 20 points in almost every poll. It was, it was eye opening. And so that told me, yes, we should be messaging to different demographic groups. And yes, that makes it hard, but it doesn't mean we should do it. But also there are some things that translate across our entire ecosystem, like the economy. And we need to find a way to talk about that that actually meets these voters where we are. And, you know, I, I think that that is one of the things that Somos is actually working on right now is trying to hone in on an economic message that sort of works across our demographic group. But I, I think, yes, there are differences. We should speak to those. There are also things that translate across the board that we can also speak to if, you know, you're, you don't want to sort of get in the nitty gritty of it. So don't use people are different in the Latino community as a cop out to not invest in the Latino community. And that's sort of my PSA to the entire <laughs> world. It's an important PSA. Also, don't use like, it's hard to as an excuse, like, yeah, it's hard. It's like, but put in the work, it's worth well, it. It's hard to yeah. but like, flip <laughs> conservative white people, but that doesn't stop right. hundreds that's of millions what, of dollars going into that effort. Ex- exactly. Yeah. And you're uh, right, Steve, there was that difference, you know, when we're talking about Latino women and Latino men, there was there was consistently a gender gap between Donald Trump's approval ratings and Biden, like who was going to vote for Biden in all of our surveys um, that we saw across the board. And, and Stephanie Valencia consistently raised up that Latino women were where we needed to be investing, right? There is the massive amount of energy there, we they, they support democratic policies, we can build on that if we invest. And they also are influencers in their communities, in their households. And so if we wanna start somewhere, let's start there. Just big, big shout out to all the Latinas doing that work. And, and it's just so classic. It's like, they're not getting credit where credit is due. The stories and the message and the narrative is never, oh, we, we got all of this because of Latinas. It was just like, well, what about you know, kind of reminds me of my immigrant parents when you get the test. It's like 98 points. They go, what about the other two points? <laughs> <laughs> and that becomes a story. It's like, well, you didn't get the other two points. And then the story often is like, well, what about these other votes, Latino votes we didn't get? Well, what about all the, you know, Latina, spe- specifically also all the Latina votes you did get? Don't get me started. <laughs> uh, so we do want to look forward and it's just exciting to hear about all the successful work that has been done and foundations that have been laid. Can you give us some insight about implications for 2022 and what you think that we can look forward to, but also what we need to know that must be done? Otherwise, you know, opportunities will be lost, et cetera. So Tomos spent the first half of the year really, you know, starting to hold back a little from program to take a minute and actually think through, okay, what did we learn in 2020? What did we actually learn? Not just like as the shockwaves wore off of all of the work that had happened. And and what does that mean for 22? So the biggest thing, and I've been saying this often, is that I think we have to get our message right on jobs at the economy because it's where we lost votes in 2020. Mm. So we've spent a lot of time working on that. Um, I'm actually working as part of a jobs and economy research group right now. Um, we'll have some things to share by the end of the year. So definitely be on the lookout for that. But that's a big one for me. I also think that just in general, I mean, in a presidential year last year, only I think according to the catalyst analysis that came out, only about half of Latino voters who were eligible to vote actually turned out to vote in 2020. And that was in a presidential Mm. year. Wow. So we have to do more to get this community involved. And, And that means, like I said earlier, having actual interactions with people in these communities and not just transactions with them 
four weeks before election day. So I think for us, it really will be how are we how are we reaching people? How are we making sure they know that there is an election? How are we making sure that they know the implications of these elections holding on to the Senate, right, will be incredibly huge. Do people understand what that means? It's our it's my job, I feel like to make sure that they do. So, you know, we'll be focusing on Senate states. I think it's important we get the jobs and economy messaging right. And I think it's important that we we are actually investing in these voters early. I mean, we say this over and over and over, and it just so rarely happens. I can tell you that fundraising this year for Somos has been painful. Um, it is just not it is just not there right now, and that worries me when we're a year out from the midterms. Um, and we should be starting to ramp up and starting to talk to people already. But I, I think the silver lining for me is if we're looking at the California recall vote recently. Um, mm-hmm. I was looking at the data UCLA actually puts out some great data about, um, you know, where Latino voters were at in that election. And Latinos had sweeping opposition to the California recall. They saved Gavin Newsom in that race, even in Republican strongholds like Orange County, they were, you know, we saw huge opposition. So I think our voters are there, we just have to go get them and bring them with us. And so a big part of our program next year is just going to be, you know, what we what we do and what we think is right is is talking to voters and, and making sure that we're bringing them along with us. You know, we're ready. Um, but it's, you know, a year out and I definitely am starting to feel the pressure already. Yeah. So I would just want well, I want a couple things I want to emphasize on for what um Musa was saying is about even for all this talk about you know, like, oh, we shouldn't do this or shouldn't do that. The dominant reality is that democratic progressive politics ignore and do not invest in, well, frankly, anybody but uh, other than white swing voters. And so for all of the talk and the opining and the opinions about this and that, the Latino community, et cetera, it's not like the money is flowing. It's not like there's tons of money that people are trying to talk about reallocating or whatnot. So this is a, a threshold issue. And then this point about voter turnout is another critical point. It seems to me is where a lot of the time, energy, effort, and attention should be, is that if you had Latino turnout, which is in some places 20 plus percent lower than the white turnout, you would see different political uh, outcome as in what happened in, in, in California. So I just think that those points are, are super important. So we're kind of coming up to the end of the time. I think you were talking a little bit about, you know, what, what, Somos is going to be focusing on. Are there particular races or states as we as we wrap up that you think should be particular attention to? We had mentioned Arizona before. Are there other places you think we should be really looking at? Yeah. So I think that Somos will be focused on the the Senate race, and for us that means Arizona. That means Nevada, where we will be focusing. You know, it is a priority state for us. Nevada is a huge priority. I think we never invest enough. In Nevada, and we always squeak out a win. So then people don't invest more in Nevada because it it, it always squeaks out a win. But you know, Somos it is a priority state for Somos. We'll be investing a large amount of our time and energy there. So Nevada, Arizona, North Carolina, and you know, you know me, Steve. I can't ever let Florida go. So I'm going to add Florida to that list where I think that Val Dibbins has done an incredible job on her campaign and is a very strong candidate. And also, you know, my personal vendetta to to see Marco Rubio voted out of office. So um, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to be watching that one. We don't want you to let Florida go either. Yeah, well, that's yeah. my other <laughs> obsession is everyone keeps saying, well, we keep coming up short in Florida. People do not realize how close we are and how much the mm-hmm. vote has actually increased there with the potential of it. So definitely keep on that Florida piece. Well, that's super great, um, Liz. I really appreciate the, well, for one, the work that you're doing, that it's just really very fundamental and insightful and, you know, critical to winning and building progress within this country. So thank you for that. And then I want to thank you for taking the time 
to join us on the podcast as we kick off Hispanic, Latino, Latinx Heritage Month. Thank you so much for having me. Really enjoyed being here and talking with you all. I always love talking about Latino voters. So anybody out there who is interested in having this conversation, please feel free to reach out. Okay, that's all the time we have for today. Hope you enjoyed our conversation with Melissa Morales. You can follow her on Twitter at, at Melissa in DC. I was working on the on the book. I was researching and I did a search of a of a tweet that Trump had sent back in um, 2018. And then the first thing that popped up for one, because Trump's been banned from Twitter, um, was Melissa responding to him. So she's very active on Twitter. So you can follow her there. So uh, please help us get the word out about this podcast by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts, sharing with your friends, tweeting at Democracy Color and at Steve P. Tweets, and finding us at Democracy in Color on Facebook or subscribing to our newsletter at democracyincolor.com. And once you subscribe to the newsletter, please take five minutes to fill out our audience survey that we're running this month to let us know what you think about the show and how we can do better. If you listen to our podcast on iTunes, please leave us a rating and a comment. This podcast is a Democracy in Color production produced by Olivia Parker with support from Charlene Chang, Fola Onifade, and April Elkier. Recorded virtually with the assistance of the podcast studio San Francisco. And I'll leave you with a cross-cultural story, as uh, Melissa was talking about the work of Equis Labs that does research and the language and words and et cetera. So my friend Marvin Randolph, who's an, who's an African-American community organizer in Virginia, was telling me this story about being out with an African-American friend of his, and they were had for dinner, and the person wanted to order a beer. And that Dos Equis has this beer, Negro Modelo. And so Marvin's friend says, I'll have that Negro beer. And with that, until next time, keep the faith. <laughs>